Good morning again. We pick up in the Gospel of John with a rather long passage this morning, so let's not lose any time. John 4, first one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sukkar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right to say, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to, her, said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that, I've ever di- that all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four mo- yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, 
Lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, would you meet us in your word this morning? Would you open it up? Would you open our hearts to receive it? So we can understand what the living water is. So we would understand what it means to do the will of the Father. So that our searching would end and we would worship you in spirit and truth. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. There's a, I know this is a little dated these days, but uh, you might know Seinfeld or some of the episodes of Seinfeld. If you don't, Jerry Seinfeld, the main character, has this crazy neighbor named Kramer. And at some point, they get into this whole thing. Kramer left Jerry's apartment unlocked. It got robbed. And Kramer starts to realize that he's living in Jerry's apartment to avoid his own life, right? He says, having Jerry's keys... Uh, to the apartment that kept me in a fantasy world. Every time I went over to his house, it was like I was on vacation. Better food, better view, better TV, and cleaner, much cleaner. That became my reality. I ignored the squalor of my life because I'm looking at life through Jerry's eyes. He goes on, he, deci- he decides he's going to go to California to pursue this acting career. It's this whole crazy plot line, and, and, and he turns to this guy, George, that he's talking to, And George is, well, George is sort of all the worst in most of us. And he says to George, he says, do you ever yearn? Looks at him really seriously. George is like, yearn? Do I yearn? Kramer says, I I yearn. Yes, often I sit and I yearn. Have you yearned? And George's answer is, not recently. (laughs) I craved. I crave all the time, constantly craving, but I haven't yearned. Of course, the comedy is in the fact that yearning and craving are pretty much the same thing, except craving is just kind of this visceral appetite. Yearning suggests something deeper, and of course, also the comedy is that somebody like Kramer is actually thinking deeply about the state of his own soul and yearning. But that is the human condition, is that we yearn. For something, whether we recognize it or not, whether we avoid thinking about it or not, whether we try to find out what on earth will make us whole or not, it is our condition. We're longing for something to make us whole. This story is a story about how Jesus provides the sustenance the sinners need. It's about how Jesus provides what is needed, and and we'll see it really in just kind of two movements. First, what it is we draw on, the wells we go to, to try to fill up what is lacking. 
and then the one well that will really satisfy us. So as we start to think about what it is or where it is that we go to to fill up that yearning, to deal with that yearning, it's helpful to have a little more background on what's happening in this story. So Jesus has been in Judea, the southern part of Israel. Jerusalem's the capital. It's there. It is sort of, well, it's sort of where Judaism really is defined. Now, he is from Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel, which is, which is still very Jewish, but really lives on the borderland with a lot of Gentiles. And he's on his way back there because he's concerned that the authorities have, are getting upset that he's becoming even more popular than John the Baptist had been. We talked about John the Baptist the other week. So he's, so he's moving away from sort of the power center uh, so that he has time to continue his ministry. And so Jesus, as he's going there, it says he has to go through Samaria. Now, Samaria is in between. You don't actually have to go to Samaria. Most Jews of the, that time would have decided to take the circuitous route of going across the Jordan River, up the east side of the Jordan River, through Gentile territory to avoid dealing with Samaritans. Much longer route, a hotter route, you have to go down basically by the Dead Sea, and you know, it's, it's a whole thing. Jesus decides he's going to take what is the much more direct route through Samaria. And most Jews do not like Samaritans. I mean, you notice the woman mentions this in verse 9, right? Why are you even talking to me? And the reason is that Samaritans have their roots with Israel. The old capital of northern Israel was Samaria. That's where the name really comes from. And after the Assyrian Empire had wiped that, that kingdom out, people were still left there. They didn't all just disappear. <laughs> they were still left there, but they had intermarried with, uh, with a bunch of Gentile nations, and they became both ethnically and religiously compromised. We're going to talk more about the religious stuff in a minute, but they were, you might say, not true Jews from an ethnic perspective. That was deeply troubling to many who cherished, of course, their Jewish identity. And there's another thing that's an important background to this, if you know your Old Testament, is that every time a man comes to a well and meets a woman, what happens? A meet cute. I mean, this is like every time, that's where you find somebody that you're going to marry. I kid you not, there is only one illustration of this in the Old Testament, it's in 1 Samuel 9, where this doesn't happen, and it's when Saul, who's the failure of a first king of Israel, goes to a well, and he is too focused to pay attention to the women that he meets there. And Robert Alter, who's a Jewish scholar, comments that we're supposed to understand from that scene itself <laughs> that Saul is destined to miss out. It's a, it's a you might say, foreshadowing, right, of, of the direction of his whole kingdom. Every other time, people walk away with a spouse. So this is loaded with a kind of like romantic feel that we might miss, right? But every time in the Old Testament, think about it, every time. You can go to Genesis 24, you can go to Genesis 29, you can go to Exodus 2, every time. Little wonder, of course, then, that Jesus ends up finding out about her romantic past or present. 
Little wonder that comes up. And we should know already that she's got problems because she's there at the sixth hour, which is noon, midday. And if you've ever been to the Middle East, noon is not the time to go doing hard work. It's hot. It's dry. Nobody goes out to do this kind of work unless, of course, you want to avoid everyone. We can tell that she is trying to avoid dealing with people because she's there at this hour. Nobody else would be there. The women would have gone early in the morning. It was an important social event for women. That's how, because most of your life as a woman in the ancient world would have been around your home. You wouldn't really have a ton of time to socialize with people kind of in the middle of the day, whatever. So this is an important time, and women would go together for a lot of reasons, some of which were safety, some of which were to, you know, for modesty's sake, to make sure that they were always above reproach. And, but again, part of it was that they would also build their own friendships and connections over that, the course of that time. So the fact that she doesn't go with them, just from the get-go, is a sign. There's something wrong with this woman. Something is going wrong. And of course, as they talk, and they start to talk about the water that Jesus has to offer, Jesus does what actually is, would be expected, right, for the sake of modesty. If they're going to continue to have a longer conversation, why don't we bring your husband into this? This is, again, you, whatever you think about ancient standards of modesty, and whether that's a smart thing or a bad thing or whatever, whatever you think about, that's certainly what he's doing. He's saying, hey, why don't you go get your husband so we can have, have a chat about this. Now, of course, Jesus knows what's going on. He knows where that will lead, and it leads right to her sin. Now, we don't we want to be careful. We don't know everything about all of these relationships. But there's no hint of tragedy in it. And it pretty clearly, and, and her, her avoidance of the other women in town, or perhaps her rejection by the other women in town, makes it pretty clear that she has been searching after love. Been longing for something, maybe confusing love for sex, who knows? But what all is happening there? But she is looking for something. Something she cannot find. And what's fascinating is you can see how much she has sacrificed for the sake of trying to find that one thing that would make her whole. I'd like to say that we're, of course, beyond that, but of course, we've made romance in the modern world the thing that will fulfill you. I mean, you might say this, this sounds very modern, in fact, right? That we believe that it is finding the person that will complete me, will make me whole. That's what we think. I think she sounds just like... M- many people we see and meet. Well, it's not, it's, there's you know, no mistake then why Jesus starts to talk about water. Of course, they're at a well, so it makes a certain amount of sense, but it is such an essential need. And again, people in the Middle East would certainly know this well. This might be something that's lost a little bit on us in in a kind of modern, advanced society, even living on the eastern seaboard right, of, the, of the United States where water is sort of plentiful, where you know, these things are kind of maybe missing in our own category, but you know what it is to be really thirsty, right? 
you've had that experience and you're just dying for a drink. And that's just the taste, right? I mean, you can't live without water for long. You can live without a lot of other things for a long period of time. You cannot live without water. You will die very quickly, especially in a desert region. I mean, people groups will fight battles for control of water. To have water is essential. You have to have it. And I think it's also interesting when the disciples show back up, Jesus continues talking about some basic needs. He starts talking about food. They, of course, went to get food. They come back and, you, you know, and I don't know how many of these conversations the disciples just end up shaking their head, right? That Jesus takes an opportunity to grab hold of an object lesson with them, right? And he says, you know, <laughs> they try to get him to eat. And he says, uh, I, have, I already have food. Of course, they're looking around. Where'd he get the food? I don't know where he got the food. You know, and then he drops, you know, to do the will of the Father is my food. You know, you know that they're going, okay. All right, Jesus. Okay. But he is, of course, making, doing it to make a point. He's, he's doing it to make the point that what we feed on, just like what we drink from, is not merely, you know, it, it's not really, the most interesting questions are not about what we do for our bodies in that way, but what we do for our souls. And he's pointing out that he's there to do the will of the Father. And then he starts to turn the image, again, on, on the idea of the will of the Father, he turns the image simply from what you eat to the harvest, right? The gathering in of the food. And he turns the image there and he, t- he tells them that they are being called to reap what's already been sowed, what the patriarchs have sowed, <laughs> what the prophets sowed, of course, what he is sowing. And so he is out there doing the will of the Father and calling them into it. And they struggle again and again, of course, to do this. I mean, you know, this is a, a thing throughout all of the Gospels is that the disciples don't really know what they're doing or how to do it, or they're reluctant to. And their reluctance, of course, is seen by their response to this woman. Now, they don't seem to actually confront Jesus about it, but you see this in verse 27. They're shocked that he's talking to her. Now, some of that, again, is an affront to maybe an affront to modesty in general, but also some of this is surely that she's a Samaritan, and they're, and they're scandalized by that. They are missing, they are missing what God calls them to. They're missing the will of God because they would rather feel superior. They cannot see this opportunity because they would rather feel superior to the Samaritans. You see, in their superiority, just as much as the Samaritan woman's searching is about a yearning and a desire to fill up what is lacking, And that realization is an ancient one. I mean, it's put, you know, probably nowhere better or nowhere quite so famously as at the beginning of Augustine's Confessions. Uh, He says, you, the whole thing is a prayer to God. And he says, you arouse us 
so, so that praising you may bring us joy because you've made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And the difference in the modern world is not that, is not the, that we don't recognize that we're restless, but we're trying to make peace with it. So the degree to which we are good consumers, we actually think of our restless longing as a good thing. That's what keeps the world going around. Maybe, maybe in slight less, slightly less uh, sanguine of a way, we have become an increasingly more psychologized culture. Now, I'm not trying to blame psychology itself for that problem, but it is a recognition that we are always searching And the thing, the fascinating thing is that the founders, of course, of psychology, Freud, Jung, and others, were incredibly honest about how deep the yearning we have is. Now, for good reason, we have left most of what they said behind in modern psychology. And yet we cannot escape the very fact that we're always searching for meaning. And that is a question that lingers over the modern world. Is what are we doing here? Is what I am doing, what you're doing, what we're about, worth it? It's a scary question. Nobody puts it better than David Foster Wallace. He was a great novelist in the 90s and early 2000s before he tragically died in 2008, but in 2005, he put it as best as anybody can in a commencement speech at Kenyon College. He, you can find it online. It's usually under the title, This is Water. But uh, Wallace puts it this way. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for, some, for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual lure and you will feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths until they finally plant you. Worship power you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will, ne- you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being, as, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see, and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. I mean, imagine that was your commencement speech. But he puts his, his finger really on the point that we all know is that we're longing for something. And we do, the, we do the handle this in different ways. Some of us are hunters. We call it being driven. 
And I'm not saying that, look, some of us by personality are more goal-oriented, and that's fine. But some of us are trying by our achievements, by our accomplishments, by our recognitions to convince ourselves that somehow my life must be worthwhile, right? I'm doing so much. I'm achieving so much. It's got to be worthwhile, right? Some of us are roamers. We maybe aren't driven. We are, maybe we are naturally curious. And so every mirage that appears on the desert horizon, we, we go after. First one thing, and when that disappoints, we go after another thing, and we're back and forth. And we might convince ourselves we're really invested in these people and these things, but come next month, come next year, it'll be something totally different. And then some of us are the police. This is a more subtle thing. But in recognizing that people are longing to fill themselves up and in recognizing that the resources are scarce, some of us try to take control by controlling who has how much. So we're always criticizing people that we feel like are taking too much. But it only proves our own lack, our own desire not to be left with nothing. Whatever the case may be, we're longing for something. And what Jesus has said, and this is where we turn to the second point, that he offers the water that is living water that will always satisfy. He calls it a free gift in verse 10. When he offers the water, he is, he is offering this woman something that will not stop. It is not a finite resource. It always has more to give. And when he talks about the bread and he talks about doing the will of the Father, it is always something worthwhile that is out there to do. Do you notice that? There's always something more. And it's, of course, on the heels of the, the talking about the water and inviting her husband that he knows is not going to show up and exposing in her sin that she changes the subject. And notice this about Jesus. He's okay with that. Right? He has touched on her sin. No doubt that brings up her shame. But what's more important than her sin and her shame is what's on offer from him. You notice that? So she tries to change the subject and make it about religion again. Again, we talk, we, I mentioned the Samaritans were religiously compromised. And this is, again, part of the complicated story about them being, you know, having some degree of common heritage with uh, the Jews of Jesus' time is that they, they did think of themselves as worshiping the Lord. We actually have copies of the ancient uh, Samaritan Pentateuch, the f five books of Moses, that they accepted, and it's a slightly different version, and that becomes a whole thing for Old Testament critical scholars, and that's a long story for some other day. But the, 
But we, we know that they thought of themselves that way. And what they did was they worshiped at Mount Gerizim, which is right nearby. That's why she says this mountain in uh, verse 20. They worshiped there. And we know that this goes back several hundred years before Jesus ever showed up. And so she makes this point, right? You say we're supposed to go to Jerusalem. They don't accept anything after the books of Moses uh, from the Old Testament. So she's saying, you know, you're, you're, you say we got to go to this place, and I don't think we need to go to that place. Yeah. She makes it about this. And Jesus, of course, says, well, look, of course you should go to Jerusalem. He actually does, he does say that, right? I mean, he says, we, sh- we are worshiping what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. As a, by the way, as a side comment here, we've mentioned a couple of times how sometimes people have read John as being anti-Jewish. Well, these are the words out of Jesus' mouth, right? Salvation is from the Jews. But don't miss the point, right? He says, you're right, we do disagree, and he doesn't think that that is an indifferent topic, right? He does think the way they're supposed, where they're supposed to be is in Jerusalem, but times are changing, Something is happening, verses 23 and 24. The hour has come and is now here. He says, the hour has come and is now here when, we will wor- when true worshipers worship in what? Spirit and truth. And the Father is seeking those kinds of worshipers out who worship in spirit and in truth. Don't miss the idea of spirit. We've actually, it, John had finished the previous chapter by talking about the word and spirit. And the idea of spirit is not incidental to the idea of the temple. She talked about the place of worship, but the spirit dwelt in the temple. That's where it was. The presence of God that had been in the pillar of smoke and fire when they wandered in the wilderness had entered into the temple and was there. So when Jesus is talking about the Spirit, he's not losing track of what we were talking about here. He's still talking about the temple. He's talking about the very presence of God, God's Spirit. And he's saying, look, the time is coming when that Spirit will be how everyone worships, not just at that mountain, but elsewhere. And again, this is consistent with plenty of Old Testament prophecies, Joel 2 perhaps being the most obvious one. But there are are plenty of places where this is consistent with it. But he starts to talk about the Spirit again. And the Spirit will go out to everyone, not just the Jews and not just at Jerusalem. And then she picks up on the idea of truth. And she says, okay, Spirit and truth, huh? Verse 25, she starts talking about the Messiah. She says, okay, I will know what the truth is when Messiah comes. When Christ, the anointed one, comes, he'll tell us the truth. And she doesn't mean by that, of course, he's going to give us more of the facts. He's not going to come with a textbook. He is coming to, sh- to tell and to show what the truth about who God is and what he's doing is. Right? Like, it, is, it will be a demonstration of who God is when Messiah comes. And Jesus says the most shocking thing in verse 26. He will never say this to a Jewish audience, but to her, he says, I am Messiah. He openly admits it. 
I'm the one you're waiting for. I am the truth. Which means, of course, then, that our worship is the thing that is really fulfilling. Because we worship in spirit and in truth. We worship being drawn in to God's presence by His own spirit that's at work in us. And we worship in the truth of what Jesus has done and accomplished as Messiah. That is what really is fulfilling. And it is here and yet still to come. We can't escape that still to come piece. This is so often difficult, but the Bible is so clear. It It is just inescapable that our hope is in the end of all things, not merely in this moment. I mean, it's written all over the Bible, and yet we're deeply uncomfortable with this idea that, our, that the true fulfillment of our lives lies ahead. Mainline Christianity has, I'm painting with a bit of a broad brush here, but often been obsessed with identifying the Spirit's work with the progress in society that has gone after a whole host of social programs. Evangelicalism has often been obsessed with the Spirit's work in my life right now. And I'm not saying the Spirit isn't at work. But both of those have tended to ignore what lies ahead. And so we, re- you know, so best, we have bestsellers like Your Best Life Now. Because we want it now. Again, because we're products of our consumer society and we we have longings, right, that need to be satisfied now. But what the Bible is telling us is that it is better to wait. This is key. This is so important. Because what is promised in Christ's return is a resurrected body. Eternal, the eternal life that Jesus is promising is not just ongoing existence. It is existence as it was meant to be, right? So it is a resurrected body. And perhaps some of us starting to feel some of the effects of age, starting to think, okay, well, maybe that isn't so bad, is it? Maybe that'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? It is a real, full realization of his reign so that the actual social change that we want will be fully realized when Jesus is here where justice will be known, where evil is not tolerated, where no one falls through the cracks. When Jesus arrives, it will be the new heavens and the new earth. It will be filled with his glory. That full revelation of Jesus will be great and glorious, beautiful in his power and his love. And that is our hope. That is what we long for. Everything we yearn for is there. C.S. Lewis puts his finger on this so well in uh, that famous sermon of his, The Weight of Glory. And he starts to talk about our longing for things. And he says, I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of us, the secret which hurts so much 
that you take revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia, romanticism, adolescence. It's the secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is so constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of the name. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it was only through them. And what came through them was longing. For they are not the things itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country that we have never yet visited. He goes on talking about beauty for a while, and he says, we do not merely want to see beauty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. And that is precisely, and of course, this is Lewis's point, what we're promised. Look at Revelation 21, and you'll see this all over the place, the final vision of the new heavens and the new earth, where God says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with him. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, or anything, for the former things have passed away. But it goes on. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Every longing will be satisfied. but I got to walk out of here today. (laughs) And I got to go on with life. (laughs) So what does that mean for now? For this day? Well, Jesus is quite clear to his disciples, isn't he? Feed on the will of God. It's pretty clear. What we're called to do is are the things that we know, right? We're, we're, we're told to pray, the prayer that he pr- taught us to pray, right? To learn his priorities, not our own. Recognizing that our priorities are often driven by our sense of emptiness, but his priorities are driven by his fullness. My love that never fails. We are told to grow into the foolishness of the fruit of the Spirit, We are told to follow the way of Jesus, bearing our cross. We are told to foolishly celebrate the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of this world, which is to say we are to take up that whole big waste of time of worship and witness. Things that are foolish. If what I need to do is fill up what's lacking in me, rather than go to those things which are the source of fulfillment. 
And of course, the comfort we're given in all of this is the never-failing love of Christ himself. Because he is giving that spirit, which is the living water. John reminded us uh, this morning before his prayer of Jesus' final discussion with the disciples, right? And he says, I leave you my peace. He tells them, I'm going to give you the spirit. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. That the well is opened in you. And the well is opened because of the truth of what Messiah has done. That Jesus has given his life for you. For those disciples. For that Samaritan woman. For anyone who would come. Anyone who was hungry and thirsty for what they lack can come to Jesus. Because his body and blood is food enough for the whole world. So let's go to that table and find it out for ourselves. Father, we pray that you would feed us on your word. That we would not be satisfied with trying to feed ourselves with what leaves us empty. But rather that we would find in you all of our longings satisfied. Find in the body and blood of Jesus what is lacking in us. For those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, Lord, would you provide for our hungry hearts, our thirsty souls, even as we come to this meal. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.